Number 198. I once met a very successful and wealthy man who said to me, I'm disgustingly healthy and disgustingly wealthy. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) However, I replied, you're not disgustingly happy, are you? He admitted he was not. And soon afterward, he became a student of this path. You know, you um, have those pictures of Master with all those thousands of people coming to his talks. And I, I was talking about Ahmed Bey the other day here. Was it just last week? Or was it? We skipped a week. That's what's happening. It has been two weeks. And um, John sent me some more information about him. And I, I really want to make sure, lest I was guilty. He was a very serious spiritual person. He just also happened to be the way his yoga expressed. He also had a lot of uh, cities, really. But he, he was a, a genuine teacher of another tradition. And imagine, if you think about Master's uh, life, which is what I was about to touch on here, he comes to this country, really think of this country in 1920. Like, how many people had ever heard of these things? There was always a, there always is a little, an esoteric group somewhere. People are finding things. So it's not like it's completely unknown. But there's thousands of people who come to these talks. And they're, you know, who are they? They're business people. They're housewives. They're just, like, there's no context at all for anything that he does. And so people come up to him and say things like that. You know, you can just kind of hear some American guy just, being how we are. And so imagine for a master actually having someone else in this country, like Ahmed Bey was, who really is a serious, extremely serious spiritual teacher, spiritual person. It's, it's just more like, it's more like home for him, even though he actually was a, trained, trained in, by an Egyptian master, as it happened. But uh, nonetheless, he was trained by someone real, and he could do something real. And for um, just the way Master described it when he went back to India where he didn't have to beg people to be interested. So you, you, in, in the whole context of American life for him to be very you know wealthy and healthy I mean that's like the apex of achievement so Master just looks at him essentially says but you don't have anything you want really do you? And the man admits that he doesn't of course that's why he's there but so radical. The other part of it is, um, Master was just so natural. And it's an extremely important thing to realize. I've been listening to a lot of recordings, old recordings that I made during the 80s into the 90s of Swami Kriyananda, but recordings that I made with a small recorder in very informal settings. And he was so natural. I mean, of course, I know that, but just hearing some of these, just conversations, how easily he laughed, how comfortable everyone was, was with him. And he, he modeled, Swami modeled his entire nature on Master. And when we first heard recordings, you know, for a long time the only recordings we had of Master's voice were those um, exhortations, where he was doing those vivid prayers or so on like that. And they were nice, of course, it was all we had. And then uh, when Swami brought back uh, recordings that were made in more informal settings. This was before SRF had released any of them. They never released any of those recordings until we did. And then they started releasing them afterwards. Um, 
But then the first one was where Master, you could tell he was just sitting and he was just talking. I think it might have been even a banquet. But nonetheless, he was just completely at ease. And there was no exhortation. There was just great kindness and joking. And Swami said, after he heard that, he said, now that's the man that I knew. He said, there's power in those other recordings. He said, but this is how Master really was. He wasn't always on stage putting on this sort of world-changing energy. He was just a very, very relaxed and natural. So when you think of this man coming up and talking to him, I mean, you, you have to visualize it like it really is. There he is in a lecture hall. Maybe the lecture is over. He's standing there greeting people, just chatting with them. I mean, that, that would have been what he would have done. Because why would he give a lecture and then be spirited off in a limousine or something like that, like celebrities would? His whole point in coming was to meet people. And so he would naturally, I assume, have, have stood there. You have photographs that were taken from the stage where he's standing with the, you know, he's standing in the audience. I mean, if you visualize, that's a very informal um, context going on. So he, who knows, he's shaking hands, he's talking, he's introducing himself. And he wouldn't have said it except just in a very natural way. The man says, I'm disgustingly healthy and wealthy, but you're not happy, are you? It, it wouldn't have been portentous because he was trying to win him. And so you have to think what really wins people. And uh, this is one of the um, unfortunate, I read the way Swami put it, uh, quoting Master in an entirely imaginary way uh, in support of, uh, of narrow, harsh, harsh was the word Swami used, harsh dictums. Swami said Master never was like that because he wanted to win people. And how many of us, we think we're, you know, we want somebody tough who really tells us, but even if you're willing to take that at all, it's because there's a firmly established relationship of love. You know, when Sri Yukteswar was, was stern with Master, or anything like that, it has to be based on their, there has to be an established relationship. And somewhere that means that the Master has reached out to us and won our hearts. I, th th these are, you know, I labor the point slightly because it's interesting to me how easily the mind, um, I, I, the word I want to use is it make, turns Master into a kind of a cartoon. It, it's like instead of really recognizing the absolutely, the fact that, that spirit descends into human form, really into human form, we start thinking of it uh, that he, he, he couldn't just respond. One of the reasons Swami wrote this book was to help us to see it. So you, you want to picture the scene in a way that it would have happened. It wouldn't have been like, I, I'm so amused when sometimes when I see these movies of Jesus, and Jesus, you see Jesus, and he's, he's turning the water into wine, and you see him... You know, trying so hard. And then when he's done, he's so exhausted. <laughs> it's like, because people don't understand what kind of energy really it really takes to turn water into wine. It would have just been there. Um, when you have, in this, in this uh, time, you've had Sai Baba. We've had Sai Baba, who just materialized. Swamiji said when he went to visit him, um, Sai Baba materialized a crystal necklace for Swami. 
which he had. I'm sure it's in the museum or somewhere now. But Swami said he just did it. He said it was so completely natural. It was like, here, let me hand this to you. Except it wasn't in the room until he decided to hand it to you. But except for that, there was no more show around it. And it it didn't take any physical energy, and it certainly didn't take any tension. It just shows uh, the limitations of the people who create those scenes. Well, it's such an unusual thing, it must have been hard to do. And how does an actor show that it's hard? (laughs) Like this. It was the collapsing and exhaustion afterwards. I really didn't know which part I enjoyed more in terms of the awfulness of it. <laughs> was this, with when they, the movie about St. Francis, um, the one that everybody loved and Swami disliked so much. Brother, son, sister, moon. He always looked like he was a little stoned. And so when something miraculous would happen in that movie, this is my recollection of it, he just would look kind of bewildered you know, like, whoa, what was that? <laughs> like, whoa, there was water, and now there's wine. You know? <laughs> so he just couldn't stand it. it, whether that actually happened or not, but that's how they portrayed him. He was always wandering around, seemingly startled by. <laughs> but that's just the director. He doesn't have any idea what he's doing. How, how could he? All right. Let's see, now where are we? Um, number 199. A wealthy man came here to Mount Washington and stayed for a time. Our work at that time was in dire financial... This is Master speaking. Our work at that time was in dire financial straits, and he might easily have saved the situation for us, but he wanted concessions from me that on my conscience I could not make, for they were unprincipled. He left, and when he did so, he said to me, You'll starve because you didn't listen. Listen meant to him my consent to his disgraceful proposal. Well, we survived. God alone always is our stocks and bonds. You know, money and, um, money and power are the same delusion. Uh, master, power, money, and sensuality, sexuality. But people get money, and then what they want to do with money is power, which is what's happening in our country right now. And uh, there's, there is just this belief that grows up around it that, that if, since everything, even Master said, every good, noble, or philanthropic enterprise sooner or later comes down to a matter of money, because it really is a fundamental reality, people do make the mistake when they have the money that they think it gives them certain rights. And almost every spiritual teacher at different times has that brought to him. Swamiji himself says that the best thing that could happen to SRF is if they lost all their money. He said because they're independently wealthy, they can simply declare reality to be what it wants to be and they, they, they don't have to have a legitimate interface because they're, they're insulated from that. I mean, that's what it provides for you. And so, so people who are used to having money are used to being able to just make things happen the way they want. It's the Vaishya consciousness, of course, the merchant consciousness, which is I can control the world outside of me. 
And money is one of those things that gives you the impression that you have a lot of control. And it's, it's certainly, the delusion is very um, impressive because it's, it's just a certain thing. That I've, I've noticed something interesting. It's not 100% true, but it's unfortunately too often true that young people who grow up not having to work because they have, they have trust funds or whatever, however it works out, usually it's, in, well, virtually always it's inherited. If a person earned it, it's a different dynamic, even if they earn it young. But usually people with inherited money, I've seen too many cases in my life where the person never actually, unfortunately, learns discipline. Because whenever the situation becomes unpleasant, they just simply can use the money they have in the bank to go there. It's not always true. I'm not condemning it. But it also, the way I was thinking of relevant for devotees, because most of us don't have the problem of having a lot of inherited money, um, is that we we ourselves begin to think that if I had more money, I could solve this problem. And we begin, it, it, we, we, we fall into that even subtly in our own minds. We feel deprived and powerless. Money and power go together in our own minds. So, so Master's telling this story, which Ananda has faced at different times, where the man simply tried to trade. You know, I want influence and power over this situation. I'll dictate. I know best. Even as he's leaving, how do you, what, what do you know? I'm the one with the money. It's, and we just always have to be very careful that way. Swami talked about very early on in Ananda's history, a man came to him and asked him, where do I belong? Should I join Ananda? Or I'm thinking of going to India. He said, if I join Ananda, he said, I have a large inheritance, I'll donate. It was about $200,000, which in the early 70s or late 60s was a significant sum of money anyway, but it was a giant sum of money then. But Swamiji had two feelings. First, he had the feeling um, that the man didn't belong at Ananda. He, belong, he, or he needed to go to India, which is his, his alternative. But Swami also thought if he wanted to be at Ananda, he wouldn't have asked. You know, he just would have, he would have said, here I am, what can I do? The mere fact that he had to ask what he should do told Swami it wasn't right. He also tells the story when he was in uh, India, in New Delhi, and he, the whole thing that led to his expulsion when he was trying so hard to find, to get land so that he could put the temple up in Delhi and start a work there. And he was trying to get permission to have land in the Green Belt, uh, which is a, what surrounded the city. He found the property he wanted, and right across from it there was an established ashram. Or there was, a, yeah, there was an established ashram right there. And so it was exactly the place Swami wanted it. So a man came to him, who, to one of his classes, or was coming to his classes, and said, the governing of that ashram depends on memberships. It's a majority rule. And the memberships are for sale. And he said, I'll buy up memberships, and then I'll vote to give the ashram to you. And Swami said, absolutely not. You can't possibly do that. And so the, the man, Swami, as Swami put it later, the man couldn't believe that Swami meant it. So he went ahead and did it. 
and he got legal control of the ashram and he came to Swami and said, the ashram is yours. It's right there, right where Swami wants to do it. He's, you know, he's, he's doing everything under his power and the man comes and offers him the ashram. And Swami said, I told you, under no circumstances, and the mere fact that you've done it doesn't make it any more righteous. And he said, absolutely not, I won't take it. And it, but you know, it wasn't a question. It, was, it wasn't honorable. It wasn't principled, as Master said. So you can see this man just trying to buy him, and Master just like, of course I'm not going to be bought by you. Of course I'll risk it. And the man goes away so upset. I mean, no wonder it takes us so long to find God. Jeez, jeez. Where there is dharma, there is victory. I was talking in a class on Saturday how, you know, much of the time, not much of the time, but some of the time, I call it, you have to do your dharma in a vacuum, is what I say. (laughs) Because sometimes the only thing you know is what the proper action is now. And you cannot figure out how... It's going to work out. But if you know what the proper thing is to do now, you just have to do it on the principle that where there is dharma, there is always going to be victory. And the corollary to that is if you ever behave dishonorably, it will never work out. Even if the conflicting cross-currents of ego are dynamic enough for you to run ahead of the consequences, even for a whole incarnation, um, you'll never it will catch up with you. And it, it's so, when you see people do really egregious things and when you see people really get hurt by other people's bad actions, it's hard. You, know, you want to protect everyone. But then you have to think back and this, it'll all work itself out because the tortured person now is the one who betrayed Dharma in the past. It's such a tough teaching. I had a comment on one of my YouTube videos, I don't even remember what it was from, but I had said what Swami said trying to talk about what happened to the Jews in the Second World War, that if the law of karma is true anywhere, it has to be true everywhere, no matter how hard the situation. And uh, quite naturally, the person just said basic, oh, she said, or he said, I don't know who it was, I stopped listening to your videos for a month. <laughs> and they weren't trying to punish me, but, but it just said I couldn't, I couldn't take it. And I understand that. You just back off. But I, I can't, I can't with equanimity imagine that situation and just casually and unfeeling say, well, it was their karma. I mean, you'd, just, you'd be insane to feel like that. So it's not like it's, you're without compassion or moral outrage even. But on a deeper level, either this is an orderly universe and someone is in charge and everything is, or something is in charge. I mean, that it's running according to divine law for the ultimate salvation of everyone, or it's not. And and you can't just... Um, like it when you like it and then protest against it when you don't. What, what I find so interesting is um, one can grasp these ideas. I'll speak for myself. I, I grasp these ideas and I mean more than ideas. 
it's just the way things are. I've, I've lived with it for so long, I can't, I can't see the universe in any other way. But then I, I just watch how the little aberrations set in, just power and money. If I had more money, I'd have more power, power over my life, whatever it might be. But just all these ways, and you don't even realize what you're doing. You're just sort of running a slight variation on the theme. One thing about Swami Kriyananda that was, as I've used many examples, he was so exact, without being rigid or even, even slightly tense or anything like that. But he was just so exact. He was absolutely exact in his speech. I, I used to um, write the, some of the promotions and publicity for Ananda. Let me phrase it differently. I used to try to write some of the promotions and the publicity for Ananda. And um, Swamiji was very directly involved because it would be like for the publications company or something like that. And much of what I wrote, um, most of what I wrote, he didn't accept. Uh, sometimes he didn't even read it. His actual words were, I can tell by holding it that it doesn't have enough magnetism. <laughs> God. <laughs> and... Uh, but when he would comment, I mean, it was always exact, um, we can use this, this is okay, this is good, every so often this is excellent, you know, well done. But it, it was always, it, he, never, he never had to say, he never had to use a lot of words, he never had to be lavish, because every word had magnetism. And so he would just say exactly what he meant, and you would receive the full um, power of his point of view, much more than if he'd buried you under lots and lots and lots of words. It was a very interesting lesson in magnetism. You don't really necessarily say more by saying more. Sometimes you say less by saying more, because the more you say, for a person who talks all the time, but sometimes the more you say, you've just dissipated. You, you know, all of the energy was in the first statement. And then the more you talk, the more that first statement is just lost in restless verbiage. I don't mean that you have to be laconic, but it's the way he writes. I mean, this book happens to be master's words, but I'm sure your books are like mine. I've been working on the Gita commentary for the webinars, and it's just silly. I still use my yellow marker, but when I look back, every word is smart. <laughs> I think it actually makes an impression on my mind, is what I finally figured. Because when you look at Swami's writing, what is there that's extraneous? If it was extraneous, he took it out. So everything that's left is a contributing word to the idea. And that was his speech was the same. Even when he was relaxed and happy, he, he every word had magnetism. Today, this morning, uh, people were talking about singing and... Uh, Karen Gemmel loves to tell this story of when she was in Assisi, Italy, one Christmas, and Swami Kriyananda was there, and she sang Shawl of Gold. And afterwards, he said, um, every note of that was wrong, <laughs> or, or something like that. He just said, there, wasn't, there was nothing about that song. You said, nothing about that song was right. And Karen, because she's so good, not many people can give feedback. So she was just delighted. He said, would you like me to help you? And she said, sure, I'd love for you to help me. 
So she went to his house there, and for an hour they worked on the song. And she said she went, uh, he said, stop. (laughs) Because she didn't have consciousness. She was just singing that sound to get on to the next one. A uh, a poor little girl. But it was a poor little girl. It wasn't just... And he just... It was all about consciousness. Every song... And also, see, a song for Swami... And this was... I'm not a singer, so I, I... I mean, I really don't sing at all. But this is how... I, I was telling a story this morning about another woman. <clears throat> he wanted her to sing Mother of Wisdom. She had a beautiful singing voice. And he said, you sing it beautifully, but you sing all songs beautifully. And there's nothing in the way you're singing this that tells me that you're singing this song. You're just singing the notes. And because you have a voice that can make the notes sound beautiful, you're just singing a series of beautiful notes. You're not singing this song. But you know, that's, what, that's, that's why when you listen to him sing, it's such a different experience. It's because he's completely present for every word. And if it wasn't needed, it's not in the song. Yeah, very interesting, huh? So, number 200. When I was new in America, I used to walk about Boston in my orange robe with my long hair flowing out behind me. Think of it. Just amazing. That's Dr. and Mrs. Lewis talking about this peculiar figure walking across the green out in Massachusetts, wherever they were, all dressed in orange with his long hair flowing. I mean, everybody in There was no East-West exchange in 1920. I mean, it was a very rare thing, but to speak of how exotic it was. One day, a group of factory girls followed me, giggling, One of them finally summoned up the courage to tweak my hair, and they all laughed. Can you imagine the kind of poking at each other? I turned around then and addressed them earnestly. I am a foreigner in your country, I said. Is this how you welcome strangers? How would it be if one of you were to visit my country dressed in short skirts? As I see you here, you would not be accepted, I can tell you that. Every country has its own customs. You should respect the customs of others. The girls were very ashamed and apologized to me earnestly. Especially in that time. Nowadays, nowadays it's actually, well, in the higher yugas, it's a global civilization. And the fact that's one of the premises in Purushottama and Vyasa's book about the yugas is they, they trace back how all cultures have a lot of, so many elements that are the same. You know, the traditions of their culture, the creation stories, the flood, and, and many other factors. It's all part of that book. And one of the things that they assert in that book is that's because the culture used to be unified. Just as right now, um, well, I realize generationally I'm beginning to get out of touch. You know, that which is my everybody knows it culture the generation coming up they don't know it at all and somebody said well it's just like when our parents used to talk to us about Frank Sinatra (laughs) and then we would be like so surprised like who what are you talking about we might have known his name but 
we didn't have the same relationship that um, I had with my very brief period of pop culture and the kids have now. I had such a silly experience. Again, it's so interesting to watch how your mind gets stuck. I was in the second grade classroom measuring the children for their costumes for the school play. And so by while I'm measuring them, I'm listening to the lesson. And Erica is reading a story with the children. And the characters in the story are communicating by email. And part of the plot of the story has to do with the email address and you know, various things like that. I really, I thought, it just seemed so like odd. And then I looked at these children who were eight or six or whatever they are. They would be seven. I thought, like, well, how, would, how else would they communicate? Do they ever get letters? You know, do they know what a telegram is? I mean, like, why would they have anything like that? And so it was no more odd in my life to have a telegram be a, a, an integral part of a story or something like that. But it's just like the whole culture changes and everybody grows up with it. And then if you, if you cling, if one clings to wherever one last stopped, then everything else seems odd to you. Now, what was the point of that? Let me see if I can find what I, why I was saying it. Yes, grandmothers have a challenge. Well, actually, you see, that's the way God makes it work, supposedly, by you have children, then you have grandchildren, and then they force you to relate to a new reality, or you just estrange yourself from them because you refuse to, because everything in my day was better or different or whatever it might be. But this is it, where the cultures were just so different. So that's what I was saying. One of the things that happens in Dwapara Yuga is it becomes a world culture, for the reasons that we can see right now, because you just, you just leave the country. You can go anywhere in the world. You can get there in a day. All it takes is a little bit of money, but it doesn't even take very much money, considering everything. And when you get there, you know, you can get pizza, and depending on where you go, which is, you know, of course, not even American. It's become, we think of it as American food, but it isn't really. But you can have the same food. You can get, let's say, McDonald's. You can get McDonald's. And uh, you can buy, you know, I've, I was told that the most globalized product in the world is uh, r the rubber flip-flops. <laughs> that there's virtually no place on the planet where people don't have rubber flip-flops. <laughs> but just think, just think that, and of course everybody dresses the same. It used to be when you would go somewhere you would have to think about it. But everybody's dressed just the same. Everybody wears jeans and t-shirts and hoodies, pretty much. It's horrible. <laughs> but anyway, there you have it. But in, when Master walked on the streets, he was just a freak. Oh, I know what I was remembering. Catherine um, Kairavi lived in Japan for a while, and uh, she learned, she became very good at Japanese. But at the time that she lived there, there were not that many non-Japanese in the city. And she was... Um, her, her um, physique is different than the Japanese because she's, she's more sturdy in the way she's built. And she was sitting on a public transportation and a group of women behind her were analyzing her and laughing at just, you know, the way she was because her, her skeleton and everything about her was so different. They didn't know she spoke Japanese. But she said it became so difficult because they're very um, proud 
and it, they would have you know they would have been so mortified to know that she could hear them um, commenting on her oddity, and they just thought they were safe doing it. But this, as you can imagine, those factory girls—they probably didn't. It never crossed their mind that he could speak English, that he was like them. He was just so weird. Think how far we've come. Now you know it's the everybody has these mixed feelings about what's becoming extinct. Languages are becoming extinct. Cultures are becoming extinct. National dress. All of it, really. It's all just going away. There's, uh, you have beautiful scenery in places, but every place is really the same. So we think of this as difficult and we fight against it, but it's a sign of an ascending age. When uh, Swami heard that they were working so hard to save the crocodiles in the Everglades, yes, I know that there are, you know, food chains and so on. But Swami said, why would anyone want to keep such a vicious creature? And a lot of, it's even when you think about species, people are so alarmed about it. And of course, not every species is bad. But, but in a higher age, would we have predators on the level that we have or would everything work differently? So when you see animal species that are not human, I mean, other species that are all becoming extinct, we're frantically trying to save them. But is that really what we're trying to do? And, and do we think really... I mean, yes, it's true that human beings are extraordinarily irresponsible in the way we're relating to nature. So it's, that's worth noticing. But the actual demise of species, is it really? It, it, it could tip us into natural cataclysm because the rodents will overrun or whatever it might be, but inherently, it's just an interesting question, isn't it? You, know, you have to apply the spiritual principles to everything. Swamiji always came up with very different answers. That, you know, you, we, you, we just would sail down our subconscious channel and then he would just take it somewhere else. All right. Number 201. After some time in America, I took to dressing more normally in public. Someone offered to buy me an overcoat, and I accepted with thanks. When I saw what he wanted to buy me, however, I exclaimed, Oh, that's much too good for me. He insisted on buying it, and also bought me a beautiful hat to go with it. It was actually Rajasi who bought it for him, I found out later. I always felt uncomfortable, because Rajasi always bought the best. I always felt uncomfortable, however, decked out in all that splendor. <laughs> Divine Mother, I prayed, this coat is too good for me. Tate, please take it away. <laughs> so cute. Sometime later, I entered a restaurant and left the coat hanging in the entranceway with the other coats. I placed the hat on a shelf above. As I left afterwards, I found that the coat had been stolen. What a relief. <laughs> and then I saw that the hat was still sitting there. Divine Mother, I prayed, you forgot the hat. <laughs> it's such a sweet story, isn't it? I, if it was indeed Rajasi who bought him, bought it for him, which somewhere I, I read that it was. You know, but he, Master had his ways. He was a renunciate. And he, I remember, it's a, it, Master wasn't thinking like this, but I remember once, um, the first time, I, I grew up in a very... Um, I, I don't want to say quite utilitarian household, but it was close to that. We, we lived comfortably, but we, we just never... My parents were not very materialistic, so 
they bought functional things rather than fine things. They just it didn't cross their minds. So I remember the first time I drank tea out of a really delicate china cup. And I, I went like that. And you know, this is a big, heavy mug. And it was just this very thin and very smooth. And I said, hmm, I see why people like to have things like this. And Swami just looked at me. He said, before you become a yogi, you've had great wealth. Nobody becomes a yogi unless they've had great wealth in the past. Yeah, because otherwise you would still be trying to to get what money can give you. You have to experience everything and you have to find out whether it works. And money is one of those. I mean, I don't know on what level he meant that, but he said, be careful. You start thinking, I mean, it's, it's a memory of when we had all this stuff and that's just what we did. And oh, there it was very pleasant. That's why I liked it. He said, you don't want to... The word was reawaken. And reawaken is a very interesting word because it's not active. It certainly wasn't active in me. I just, even to this day, I just don't think like that. I, I, have, I buy a few things that I like and I like to have things that I like. But I just don't think in terms of getting expensive things or super fine things. But you don't want to reawaken it. Because you, you never know. That's what I've mentioned many times. Master says, don't ever take a drop of alcohol, ever. Because you might have the samskar to have been an alcoholic and you don't want to reawaken it. And that's, again, that's a, a very strong um, incentive uh, for living a pure life. You know, from childhood all the way through. And a lot of people just know that. They just know. It's not even that like they're prudish or anything like that. They just know. You know, I just don't, don't want to go there. It's just not, not for me to go there. Because it can reawaken all those things. If, you, if it's your destiny to just hold it like this. I was, somebody gave us... Um, that when we had the, uh, when we would, would pin our, our light bearer robes, many years ago, like 10 years ago, someone gave me as a gift a, a gold pin. Not a gold-looking pin, but an actual gold pin. Which were about, you know, they cost about $150 then. Which was a lot of money for that item. And it was a functional item. The gold one, I had to admit, the, gold, the real gold really was much prettier you know, real gold is real gold. It looks like it looks like what it is. And it was much nicer, but I was always conscious of how much it cost. <laughs> and whenever I'd travel or take it with me or be changing in the uh, minister's room, it was always I was always aware that that everybody else had these others that were not expensive, and then I had this one that was gold. I always had to keep track of it. I always had to know where it was. When I travel, I had to be careful with it. I had to be sure and didn't lose it. I couldn't put it in my check luggage. And somebody stole it out of the minister's room. Yeah. I mean, that's my only explanation I can think of because it disappeared. Yeah, I was. I mean, at first it was just like unbelievable. I mean, it was just in that drawer all the time and there were others. Somebody came in and stole it. I mean, I'd say that because there, it's never shown up again. The box, it just went away. And it, but I have to say, I felt just like him. Oh, thank heaven. Now I can just have one of these other pins and I don't have to always say, no, that's mine. That's the gold one. That's mine, you know. 
Well, he did. I really felt like I'd been done a favor, but it was, I, I, I of course, knew the story of the overcoat because we'd all heard it for a long time. But it was interesting. I, I felt that. It's like, I don't need a gold pin. You know, it's fine. I just, it's just pin, and the other thing, look just the same. Nobody knows. I don't need this. It was a very, it was a gift, and it was very sweetly meant, and it was very generous, and it was prettier. I, you know, I wasn't immune, but I just don't need this. What am I going to do with this thing? So it was very relieving not to have it. Funny. Number 202. Dr. Lewis told us the following story. Oh, this is so sweet. When the Master was new to this country, I'd had no experience with anyone of his spiritual stature, who had, after all, in America. At our first meeting, he looked into my eyes with deep love and asked me, Will you always love me as I love you? That was at their first meeting. And I mean, how did he know how Master loved him? How did he know how to make such a promise? But of course, he, he recognized him. Uh, Dr. Lewis was very deep into the Rosicrucians when he met Master. He was the president of the Rosicrucian Society. So he was not um, a stranger to the inner worlds. So it, it wasn't out of the question for him. Um, at our first meeting, he looked into my eyes and with deep love asked me, will you always love me as I love you? I was deeply moved. Something inside me responded. I answered, yes, yes I will. I have always been true to that pledge. I admit, however, that my faith has sometimes been tested. Once back in those days, someone told me false tales against the Master. I didn't believe them, but still, I was a little shaken. It was, I was working in my dental office that day, and the master was riding a streetcar. All at once, he got off, walked several blocks to my office, and entered the door. Walking straight up to me, he looked deep into my eyes and asked, Do you still love me, doctor? <gasps> oh, my goodness. I mean, master just read his mind knew that he was waffling, dropped everything he was doing, and came over and just went right to him like that. You know, for Master, and for, for anybody who has the experience of living with souls like that, it, it, it it's all falls, it, there was nothing remarkable about the fact that Master was perfectly conscious of his thought, or nothing unusual about it for Master. It was just as if they'd spoken. But the response still... Do you still love me, doctor? What could I do? Of course, I melted. My faith was completely restored. Just think how... Um, let's see what, what I want to say with that. He then told me, Someone borrowed a sum of money from you a while ago. Isn't that so? You haven't been able to get it back. That's true, I marveled. I've been really needing that money. If you go there now, he said, you will get it. I went, and indeed, though I'd been waiting a long time, the man gave me what he owed me. How, um... How precise is the Master's care? You know, it's just like, um... It, it, we think it's dependent on the physical presence, 
But there was nothing, I mean, because Master was there physically, he was able to get off the streetcar and walk over there and say it like this. But not, there's no difference. I remember Swami was uh, giving a lecture once, and he started talking about a guru bhai. That I'm not really, I don't quite remember who it was, maybe it was Dr. Lewis or someone, but he started saying things that were not entirely complimentary. I've never seen this happen with Swami before, because he's often quite frank. It's not like he's never allowed to speak, but it was a public lecture, and he started speaking, and it was somewhat less than complimentary, and he stopped, and he said, Master doesn't want me to speak like that. And then he just went on to the, whatever, and he dropped his subject and went on to something like that. I mean, it was that close in his consciousness. I think perhaps it happened just to demonstrate that, that all of a sudden Swami was, you know, was going on, he felt in tune, then he felt out of tune. And Master stepped in and put him back. That's just what was happening to Dr. Lewis. Dr. Lewis was in tune with Master, but then the people put these false ideas into his head and he began to worry. So he was here, and then he was here. And so Master said, no, come back to here. But that's always going on. But it depends on how receptive we are. It's as simple as that. Yes, Nishkama? Yeah, it's right behind you. It also shows how much uh, more in tune with his tunefulness Swami was than most people. Of course. He didn't take much to... Uh, he was so sensitive. He had three and a half years of physical proximity to Master. He was not 25 before Master died. 26. I mean, and the rest of his life was all um, beyond the body. I mean, you think of him as a direct disciple, but it was not a long time. Of course, that's a long time. But, I mean, anything is a long time. But still, it's, most of his life was was based on I mean, really, the, almost his entire spiritual life was based on what he could intuit, not on what was said to him. It's very well worth remembering. Well, let's take a little break. Number 2,203. Assuming there's no lingering questions from the break. All right. Dr. Lewis told us many fascinating stories from his long years of association with the Master, there was a man, he said, who had been wrong, wrongly condemned to death. The case was widely reported in the papers, and almost everyone thought it an obvious miscarriage of justice. I told the master about it with some indignation. He paused and looked very serious. Then he withdrew into himself. When he resumed normal consciousness, he was smiling. Soon thereafter, the condemned man was pardoned. Was the master responsible for the reprieve? He himself said nothing about it. I had known him already long enough, however, to have my private suspicion. <laughs> what, what really struck me about this is that line um, that Swami added into the festival in the last couple of years. You know, all, all souls are equal. Not just Jesus Christ, Babaji, Krishna, and great saints everywhere, but even those on earth who have sinned most greatly. I mean, all souls are equal before God. It's so, again, this is how the mind just slips so easily 
into a delusion, a delusion that how could it not be? How could God not be more fond of those who are more in tune? And we feel, and we, it, it goes the other way, which is that we are always feeling, often feeling, that our relationship with God is a conditional one. And that when I'm not doing as well, then God is just as stingy with his affection for me as I am with everybody else who displeases me. It's the most anthropomorphic thing we can do about the divine is that we're, we parse out our affections, we measure, we weigh, and we're always trying to decide whether people are really worthy of our continuing friendship. And what that does is that creates a, a, a mindset in which that's how the world operates. And so we're always, it's very difficult to have that constant, absolute confidence that no matter what happens, your essential relationship with God is always the same. Uh, the, the, um, that story about Hare Krishna's sister, Shefley, who was the daughter of Master's brother, Sananda, who was three years old when Master came back, to um, Calcutta for that year in 1935. And she was three years old. She absolutely adored Master. She considers him, as she be- when she became an adult person, she considered him her guru. She remembers nothing about being three years old with Master except what everyone has told her. But she was utterly uninhibited in her affection for him and totally, um, completely smitten. And assumed, this is the part I love, just absolutely assumed that he absolutely wanted her to be close to him all the time. And there was just no, I mean, like children are, there was no place in her mind where, it, it, where she would question that. He was just, he was there, he wants me on his lap. Of course he does. He comes into the room, he wants me to just leave everything and rush over and he'll take me up in his arms. Now how, much conf- how, how often do we actually behave like that in our own lives? We're so, uh, we so expect to be rejected. It's quite a lesson. I've, I've meditated on it quite a lot. I mean, when she first told us that story, she had to tell us in translation because she didn't speak English. We're in, the, in Master's Four Garpar Road house. When we started going over to India, um, we learned Americans are so total, you know, it's like in five minutes the whole story's on the table. But when we would go to India over several years, um, Master's family and other Indian friends would gradually open up to us. And we didn't even know Hare Krishna had a sister for a long time. And then finally, you know, we were introduced to his sister, and then slowly her experience came out. I mean, I'm not sure how many years it took, but it took longer than it would have taken us. And, uh, but she finally came over to tell us her story and she, she's certain kind of, she was very, very shy, and she spoke Bengali to Hare Krishna, and then he spoke into English. But she just, you know, told the whole story, which was not actually her memory, because she has no memory of it. But the part about it is the soul remembers. You go into superconsciousness, you're right there, you go into your life review, you remember everything. But just, well, that's why be as little children. And why, why would we think otherwise? So here's Master, and there's, there's this condemned man. Very difficult situation. And it's undoubtedly Master intervened. He just went inwardly and 
through the fact that he's in all beings equally, who knows? He, I put the thought into the mind of the governor, probably. But of course, the governor, whoever did it, or the president, whoever did it, wouldn't have been able to receive it unless uh, it was there to happen. But he, this is why having a guru is such an extraordinary blessing. Because all of that that we have set in motion, this is how I think about the intervention of the guru. This is just my own um, construct. I, I, uh, karma is like uh, a boomerang a little bit, or, or, or a boing ball. You know, that it can go out. You, you use this force and you send energy out in a certain way. And you think it's just going to go away. But it's tethered to you. This is because we identify the jiva, identifies with the ego. And so when, the, when we act, we identify with that action. So it's not pure energy. It's not just energy flowing through us. It's energy that I have expended. It's my energy. It's my action. And that's what ties us karmically. Mas, uh, Swami writes elsewhere, a jivan mukta um, can't, doesn't create any more karma because he's not identified. There's no ego. There's no post of ego. So we send the energy out and the energy might be judgmental or it might be unkind or fearful, or generous. It can all be positive even, but whatever it is, let's think in terms of, of negative. We take somebody's money. Uh, we behave dishonorably in this manner. We're very harsh with someone to whom we should have been kind. But the thwarting cross-current of ego is that it happened, but I have so much willpower, I just keep going like this. And so it never, it can't quite catch up with me because I have all these other things going on and I have all this forward momentum and it happened and it's running but I'm ahead of it. I'm outrunning it. But sooner or later because it's tied to me or if you think of like a boomerang that takes that big trajectory. So I take my brother's money, let's say. I take my brother's money. I, with that money, I make all these things happen and I kind of just forget about my brother. But the fact that I got all that experience in a dishonorable manner is this boomerang that's going around like this. So taking my brother's money, as an example, may have not been the only bad thing I did, and it may not be the first time. So we also have all these energies that are working their way through it. So let's say, here I am doing this one, and the boomerang starts, but all other things start hitting me, and I start waking up. And I start realizing, oh my gosh, this is no way to live. And maybe, and, and I finally get so um, awakened that I get on the spiritual path and I get a guru. And, but, so now I have basically, I've gotten the point. And that's the main thing. I've gotten the point because of everything that's happened to me. And so now I'm operating correctly. At the same time, this boomerang is still going. But by the time it reaches me, um, it's not that it doesn't have to balance. It's just that I don't need it anymore in the same way that I needed it. And that's when the master will intervene. It's like there's just no point in 
having you die in the automobile accident or become homeless on the street, which is what this karma would have done to you. But you've already got the point. The point is, I'm living for God. So the Master takes it. He takes it away from you. And as we always say, you get, you, it's mitigated. You're supposed to lose a hand and instead you break a finger or something like that. So something happens, a little bit hits you, but you just don't need to be smashed anymore. Why should you? I mean, and the way you keep that up all the time is one is eager, always. You're just, you're eager because the only reason it has to crash into you from a divine point of view is to wake you up. And if you're already awake, I mean, you can also think about it as vibrationally. The, the, the selfish energy has a certain vibration. If, but by the time it comes to you, you've purged that vibration from your consciousness there's no meeting point. You know, it'll just, it'll just pass through you. It won't stick anymore because you're not, that's not who you are anymore. Pardon me? Yay, exactly. Um, so here's this man who knows he had the karma to be, to come to the attention of Dr. Lewis, who brought it to Master's attention. Very complicated. But it, it also... No matter where you are, what you're going through, no matter how difficult, no matter how much it's your own stupid fault, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, God only wants one thing from us, and that's that we recognize that that's, we should always turn in that direction. I remember someone wrote, Swami once, and she had a very difficult decision to make, difficult because it seemed to matter which decision she made. It really looked like it really mattered. And she wrote to Swami and said, Sir, I just can't. I keep trying everything I can to figure out what to do. And I pray to Master and I just don't know. Swami says, Oh, just make either decision. He said, Master is pleased that you're asking. And I've, I've contemplated that. And just really tried to understand that. Master is pleased that you understand that you should run your life according to your inner sense of what he wants from you. And that is the point. The point is not that you should do this or this. And this is one of those things where I've often said, God doesn't answer the prayer because he doesn't care. <laughs> because it doesn't matter. It matters to us in the world of Maya. It matters not at all in terms of our self-realization. So he can't have an opinion because there is no opinion. And that was sort of what Swami was saying. Just do whatever. It doesn't matter. Master is pleased. What pleases Master is the, all that matters is that you are asking and it matters to you because we are all equally dear. And Swami put that in the festival. It's like, it's, it's a little bit of a mouthful, you know, because I've been saying this thing, these things for a long time so I have to say it out loud every time. And I often add in the word, I, I mean, I shouldn't. <laughs> those, those who have sinned most greatly and I just change it grammatically to those who may have sinned most greatly. But he doesn't say that. He says those who have sinned most greatly, which is really all of us. Who among us has not sinned greatly? It also depends on your perspective. <laughs> but still, but, and I, every time I read that, you know, it's funny with the festival. I mean, I'm perfectly capable of comprehending the words. I could probably give a, an hour-long sermon, and here I am. Actually, I'm giving an hour-long sermon on those words. But I can tell when I say them that I don't understand them. You know what I mean? I don't, 
I can tell that there's something in there that I just don't get yet. Yeah, on that level. Do you, you know what I mean? The festival's like that. There's so many phrases in there and over 30 years or whatever it's been, different parts of it make more sense. But I, I try to say that's because they're newer. Those three, there's three, three lines in there, three parts that are newer. But I don't think that's the reason. Because <laughs> they're not so new now. But I just can feel, I don't comprehend this one yet. Even on the superficial level that I would call comprehending. Interesting, isn't it? That's why we do it. That's, pardon me? Yeah, the comment is, it's like what I was saying about the music. Each word has a deep reason for being there. That's why when I just stick in extra words, I can hear him just saying, Asha, if I wanted that word in there, I would have put it in there. (laughs) And then he would explain the grammar to me, which I can never understand, and how we've changed the meeting and so on. Okay. Shall we go on? Number 204. The master, when I, Walter, met him, told me a strange story. There was a young woman I met in Chicago, he said, She asked if she might see me alone. I always keep a door open when giving interviews and have someone sit outside where I can be seen. This young woman, however, was insistent on seeing me alone. So I told her she could speak softly. She then looked at me alluringly. It's a wonderful choice of word. Alluringly. And said, you are very nice. (laughs) You are very nice. I looked her straight in the eye and said, with an expression of great distaste, sin and disease. At that, she burst into tears. After I'd probed a little, she admitted to me that a man had once betrayed her and had infected her with syphilis. Since then, she said, I have tried to revenge myself on all men by giving syphilis to everyone I can. Oh, imagine such despicable behavior. I gave her a blessing and she was healed. But I made her promise never again to behave so contemptibly. Every part of that story, isn't it? Just look at Master's life experience. It's also interesting he says that because he was he was subject to a lot of uh, scurrilous attacks. Whenever I give interviews, I always sit with have the door open and sit where they can see me, so nobody can say later that something happened that didn't happen. He was watching for that, and even still, he was accused of terrible things because he had women disciples and they all lived together up in that big house in Mount Washington, and it's just it just said about everyone. St. John of the Cross, he had a, some, uh, somebody who just was after him all the time. He, when St. John of the Cross was dying, and there were nuns who were taking care of him, this man who, I don't know his name, but he was his detractor, he interviewed the nuns to try to get them to say that uh, John had been behaving inappropriately with them. It's just like people's minds. Just Swamiji said when he was accused of um, so much misconduct, accused of misusing funds, of, of uh, taking advantage of the women, of being a dictator over other people, he said, because that's what they would do if they were in my position. 
and they literally can't imagine that I'm not doing it. And, and no matter how we would try to say that's, that's not the life that we're living, they just thought that we were just being clever. Because if you had all that potential, of course you would take it, because the person, the people saying it, they just spoke about the accusers. It was just the world they lived in. And, I mean, it was true. They literally could not imagine because they couldn't imagine themselves if they, had that, if they had that opportunity. Of course they would take it. But this woman, just think, but, but what you can also see in this woman is how, um, how intensely sad her life must have been. First of all, I mean, syphilis was, I, I presume in that time, it was much more difficult or impossible to heal. So here she's a young woman. And she has a romance, and it turns out the man is a scoundrel, and she's not his only lover, and so she ends up sick. It's the way people got AIDS in our particular time. But just everything is fine, and then her whole life is over. You know, perhaps she's going to die. I think syphilis made you insane, if I'm not mistaken, at that time. Yeah, it goes to your brain. So here she is. Just think of it. She was obviously young enough to consider to be able to seduce men. But she just must have been absolutely devastated inside. And what a vicious response. That's why Master was so intense with her. But she gets ends up all the way to him. Nobody crossed my path except for a purpose. That's how he put it. So she comes all the way to him. But her first thing is to try to run the same scam on him. But it's just, it's like um, Mary Magdalene. Just the master, the master just looked at her and saw in her something that nobody else had seen. I just, it's really thrilling. These are stories that just like when you begin to lose heart. And it, it, this is... Um, I, the Bible is not my primary scripture because it just has never been. But I read the Bible. I have read the Bible a number of times, or I mean, lots of it. I read. I have read the Bible, parts of the Bible, frequently. That was what I would say. And every so often, when I'm in that book, and the power of it begins to come through to me, I, I understand how people just read the Bible all the time. I mean, people who are fanatical about it, and it's all they read, and they read it all the time. Because it's living. Just there's a living presence in there. And the same stories that you read about Jesus over and over, they look different to you. So in this book, Swamiji has just given us, I mean, here just this evening, you, you just when you begin to lose heart or, or feel a little dry, you, you can just go back and live through these um, extraordinary moments that the Swami put in this book so that we would all have access to them. Um, I, I know um, when I was writing the, the book I wrote about Swami, and I did it instinctively because he trained me to do so. But everything had to be universal. It, there, there had to be a way that you could read that book and not just think, oh, I wish I'd been there. I, I had that experience with this other uh, guru many, many, many years ago. I was in Los Angeles and it was a woman. She was very... It was a... Uh, what's her name? 
Guru, Guru Mai, Muktananda's successor. And she was very popular and was in Los Angeles and had an evening and I thought, well, I'll go see her. And it was all very enjoyable. It was a very Indian scene and lots of Indian chanting and I loved all that. But uh, she didn't come out for a while and for about an hour, different ones of her devotees stood up and told stories. And not one of them knew what they ought to be doing. (laughs) Because every one of them told, and what were sometimes quite interesting, unusual experiences that they'd had, but not one of them made it relevant to me. You know, there were no principles involved, there was no universal lesson. So really all I ended up feeling, I mean, I would have felt, I didn't feel it, but I would have felt it, was how lucky they were and, and how unfortunate it was, how envious I felt. And I thought, that's just so unfortunate. They weren't trying to do that, but they just didn't know how to, how to do it, to be helpful. So I, when I was thinking of this story and um, Master getting off the streetcar to come over and talk to Dr. Lewis and just uh, the importance of understanding these in the right way. What's being explained to us is who Master is and how he takes care of us. And it's not really about that woman with syphilis or or Dr. Lewis. It's about who Master is and how he takes care of us. And every story, we have to contemplate it for how how the, the fact of that happening is intensely relevant to my personal spiritual life. Otherwise, what's the point of the book, really? Master's already realized we don't have to know how wonderful he was. I mean, and certainly Swami's dedication as a disciple, of course, he, he, he rounded up everything in here, like, no, there's no masters in Mount Shasta, but there have been colonists. <laughs> you know, he threw in a bunch of stuff that's just really interesting. But nonetheless, so... Um, Anyway, that's that. That's it. Any comments or thoughts before we close off for the night? Okay, thank you all for coming. That was fun. So I went from I went from one nine eight through two o four, and I'll take a pen from someone. Thank you. Thank you.